does. Um, I normally ask for prayer during this season um, simply because my allergies are uh, just really, really bad. Um, I woke up this morning, I could barely see, and my voice sounds like Barry White. Um, for those of you, is that, did I get that right? So Barry, Barry, Barry White, is that it? Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, can't get enough of your love. Yeah, that's, so my voice sounds, and, uh, and it's usually like I, I get brain fog, and so, um, so some of you know that, and you've been praying. I'm asking all of you to pray for that. It usually ends, so it's, it's like March and April, and then May, I, I return to somewhat normal. Um, so for March and April, if I look at you weird, it's not because I'm having some weirdness. It's just because I, well, you know, allergies, allergies, just so you know. Um, this text is an amazing text, and I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to do it justice. I'm just going to be honest with you. And so what I hope to do, though, is just give you enough of this wonderful text for when you leave, you go back and you read it and plumb the depths for yourself. So much of what I want to say today, we don't have time to, to dive into. So much of what I want to show you, um, I, just, I just simply can't, partly because of my own finiteness and partly because... Um, Time doesn't allow for it. But what I, what I ask you to do as your pastor is to please, please go back and look at this text afresh for yourself and see the beauty and wonder that is in this text. Please do. It, it's a, it would be a gift to your soul if you read it and understand the power in it. And I will do my best today to bring out enough of it so that we can all give glory to God together. Amen. So here now, uh, the reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 through 11. Even though I'll read this portion, I'll pull from the surrounding text as well. Now when uh, they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fold, of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Well, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. 
the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, indeed, this is your word and these are your people. I pray that you might unite them now, that you might bless your people with the reading and the proclamation and teaching of your word. And may you cement these truths in their hearts, I pray. And now, Father, do what only you can do. Blessed Holy Spirit, work now among us. There is so much that needs to be said that will not be said. But I pray that nonetheless, what is said will do the work you accomplish. We ask this in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen and amen. One of the reasons why this Sunday, Palm Sunday, is so significant is because it's the first time in Jesus' ministry where he publicly proclaims who he is. Remember, up to this point, Jesus constantly told people, don't tell anyone who I am. I've healed you. You probably realize who I am, but don't don't tell people who I am. This is known as the messianic mystery. But now Jesus lives, uh, leaves no doubt who he is. And the text tells us that Jesus has proclaimed himself to be the messianic king. Notice here in verse numbers 1 through 5, Jesus intentionally tells his disciples, I'm going into Jerusalem. I want you to get a donkey um, and a colt with her. And I want you to bring them to me. And this is how I'm going to ride into Jerusalem. And we are told that the reason why he did that is because he wanted to fulfill the scripture. And the scripture that he wanted to fulfill was Zechariah 9.9. And if you remember the story of Zechariah 9, Zechariah prophesies of a king that will come. And it's exactly like this. Uh, You can read it in verse number 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, that's the children of Israel, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fold of a beast of burden. He's prophesying this messianic king that is to come. And now he's here, and Jesus says, here am I. I'm the messianic king. Now, immediately, we're supposed to ask ourselves a very critical question, and the very critical question is this. Why did Jesus take so long to announce the fact that he is king? Wouldn't he do that at the very beginning? That's a very good question. And here's the answer to that question. Jesus knew that when he proclaimed himself to be king, one of two things are going to happen. Either, once he proclaimed himself to be king, either we are going to crown him as king, or we are going to crucify him. There's no other way. Either he's going to be crowned as king, as Lord, or he will be crucified. And and sure enough, after Jesus proclaims himself to be king, five or six days later, they killed him. Now, why is that significant to us today? Here's why it's significant to us today. If you want to live a transformed life, if you want to live 
the Christian life that God intends for you to live, you have to see that Jesus Christ is king. You have to accept him as king. Not just as a good teacher, not just as a therapist, not just as a, a wise sooth, not just even as a prophet. Jesus has to be king. And unless he's king in your life, you, by definition, will reject him. And in this passage, we're going to see there are a number of different ways people approach Jesus as king. There's a number of different reactions to the reality of Jesus to be king. And I want to approach this text a little bit different in that I'm going to point out all the ways that people looked at Jesus as king, and then I'm going to look at the way you and I are supposed to look at him as king, and then I'm going to show you why that matters. Okay? So that's how we're going to approach this text. First, we're going to look at all the different ways people looked at Jesus as king. And the first way is that Jesus is looked at and he's misunderstood. So if you're taking notes, he's the misunderstood king. Now, if you're anything like me, Palm Sunday was a big deal growing up. How many of you went to a church where you acted out the Palm Sunday uh, event? Anybody like that? Yeah, I did. I grew up in one of those churches. You know, everybody had the palm branches and they would cut it and they would give it to us little boys. And that was a big mistake. Because immediately as we grabbed those palm branches, we turned those into weapons. And we're supposed to be in line throwing down these palm branches, but instead we were sword fighting with them. And they also gave us cloaks, which was another big mistake. Because all of us bundled those cloaks and tried to see how hard we could hit Jesus with them. I wasn't always the saint I am before you today, right? It's a dark, dark hour in my life. And I look back on that time, and I said to myself, man, I, all of us during that time misunderstood what was happening. For us, this was fun time. For us, this was playing, right, with, with the palm branches and throwing these cloaks at Jesus. And I mention that for this reason. That's exactly what's happening in this text. Notice with me that, that the people are shouting Hosanna to the son of David. They understood Jesus as being some kind of king. But did they really understand what kind of king he was? You see, most Jews during this time understood Jesus to be a different kind of king. They wanted a political king. They wanted a king that would defeat the Romans. They wanted a kind of king that would establish a political kingdom here on earth. That's the kind of king that they were looking for. And in part, that wasn't just born out of sin. That's what they were taught. They were taught that Jesus was a political figure, the Messiah, the king that's represented here in verse 1 through 5, that he was a political figure and he would come and he would establish a kingdom here on earth. That's what they were thought. That's what they were taught. Uh, just as an example, you might say, well, pastor, how do you know that? The text doesn't say that. Look over in Matthew chapter 20, verse uh, 20 and 21. Notice uh, the, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came and 
and she came to Jesus, and they, she kneeled before Jesus, and Jesus said in verse 21, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Well, why would she say that? Because she's thinking about an earthly kingdom. She's saying that Jesus will come and establish his earthly kingdom, and she wants her sons to sit on this earthly kingdom. And everybody understood that because the Bible says later on that when the disciples heard it, they became indignant. Verse number 24. Why did they become indignant? Because they want that place as well. They want that place of honor here on earth. But that's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to establish. Not an earthly or political kingdom. Well, what kind of kingdom did he came to establish, Pastor Dennis? Well, notice with me in verse number 12 through 14 of chapter 21. Notice with me that Jesus didn't go to Herod's uh, palace and cleanse Herod's palace. No. The text tells us here that Jesus went to the temple and cleansed the temple. Now, don't miss this because this is important. What kind of king would ride in on a donkey, right? Not a war horse, with 12 men, not an army, and said to be lowly and not brave and powerful? Does that sound like an earthly king that came to take and establish a kingdom? No. Because Jesus went immediately to the temple and he cleansed the temple for this reason. He's the kind of king that's not interested in conquering Rome, but interested in conquering you. See, Jesus could have conquered Rome and nothing else fundamentally changed about all the people that were in Rome at that time or in Israel at that time. They still would have been in their sins. But the whole point that Jesus is trying to make here is this. When he went into the temple and cleansed the temple, notice what he called it. He said that you have made, instead of my house or my temple, a house of prayer, you've made it a den of robbers. What does that mean? Well, robbers go into the den to hide. And Jesus is saying you are using the temple as a shield, as a hiding place for your own sin. Instead of dealing with the sin that's deep within you, you're hiding behind the temple. And I came not to conquer Rome, but ultimately to conquer you and to be your king. That's the point of the text. Now you're sitting there and you're saying to yourself, well, Pastor Dennis, I, I get that point, but why does that point matter? Why does it matter that we understand what kind of king Jesus truly is? Let me tell you why. Charles Spurgeon wrote a sermon on this text. And, and I actually wish I had read his sermon before I wrote my sermon. Because then I could say, hey, listen, listen to what Charles Spurgeon said, and then give him all the credit, because he makes a brilliant point here. If you read Charles Spurgeon's uh, sermon on this text, and I, and I encourage you to, because it's brilliant. But here's the point of the sermon. Charles Spurgeon says that if you and I misunderstand the king, then we will misunderstand his kingdom. And then, he says, if you misunderstand the kingdom, you'll have misplaced expectations 
first kingdom. Did you understand that? Let me show you what I mean. Go back to chapter 20. And notice as this mother asked for this place of honor in the kingdom, notice how Jesus answered that. See, she wants a kingdom of comfort. A place where they will rule in comfort. But instead, notice what Jesus says in verse 22. You won't get that. Instead, will you be able to drink my cup? What cup is he referring to? The cup of suffering. The cup of suffering. That's Jesus' kingdom, that we are called to suffer. Notice, again, the second thing is that he, they wanted a place to rule. But Jesus says that he's not, he didn't come here for us to be rulers but notice at the bottom, he came for us to be servants. And then again, they want to exercise authority. But Jesus says, no, we are called to exercise humility. And let me say this. Spurgeon goes on to say this. And this is at the heart of it. There are so many people that give up on Christianity, that get despondent about Christianity, that actually put Christianity on the side for this one reason. They misunderstand the king, and they misunderstand his kingdom, and then they put their expectations in the wrong place. Why hasn't God provided me yet with a spouse or a child? Why, why does God allow all these evil things to happen? Isn't he king? Why doesn't he put an end to all the suffering in the world? Those are the questions that we ask ourselves. Why? Because we misunderstand what he actually came to do. And by the way, one day the Bible tells us God will actually put an end to suffering. Amen to that. We have a Savior that one day has promised he will put an end to suffering. But for right now, that's not primarily what he came to do. He came to put an end sin. He came to put and he came to conquer us. And to put our hearts into submission to him. And so many people walk around completely despondent with Christianity because they expect the kingdom to be now. The kingdom is not going to be now. It's come for sure. But it's not going to look like what you want it to look like. Remember this, if you're ever confused by whether or not Jesus Christ is working in the here and now, then look around at what he's doing. Isn't that exactly what he told John the Baptist? John the Baptist sent his disciples to him, and John the Baptist says, hey, what kind of kingdom is this? I'm still in prison. I'm still suffering. And what does Jesus tell his disciples? Go and tell John what you have seen. The lame are walking. The blind are seeing. Hey, Look around this room. There's a whole bunch of people that know Jesus in this room. That's a sign that the kingdom is here. There's a whole bunch of people in this room that are giving their time and their money and their energy to the kingdom. That's a sign that the kingdom is present. Hey, we looked at what happened in Nashville. And we say, you know what? There's something wrong with the kingdom. Because a crazy person went into a school and killed six people, three children. My goodness. 
It's enough for us to be sad and think that there's something wrong with the kingdom of God. But you know what? I look at that and I say, you know what? It could have been so much more. And I'm thankful today that there wasn't. And I'm also thankful today that I could come into this church. And no matter what happened in any church service I'm in, my Jesus reigns. And no matter what this world might do to me, I'm not looking for a kingdom to keep me safe. I'm looking for a king to rule over my heart. And that's what this text teaches us. He's not the savior you think he is. He's not the king that you think he is. Don't misunderstand him. Because as Spurgeon rightly says, we will misunderstand his kingdom and then we'll put misplaced priorities on him. So that's the first thing. They misunderstand him. The second thing is that this. They rejected him as king. Isn't this sad? Drop down to the cleansing of the temple, verse 12 through 14. Jesus comes in. He cleansed the temple. He heals some folks. And then in this glorious scene in verse number 15, it says, the children are crying, Hosanna, son of David, please save us. And the Bible says that the, the, the Pharisees, sorry, the chief priests and the scribes, they were indignant at it. What does that mean that they were indignant? That's a way of saying they rejected him as king. Now, why would they reject him as king? Well, they rejected him as king because they don't want Jesus to have lordship over them. See, the, the, the scribes and the high priests, they were a law unto themselves. They were autonomous. They didn't want Jesus ruling over them. And so what did they do? They rejected this idea of him being king. And that's not unusual. Just recently, I was talking to my youngest son, George, and that's always a fun endeavor. And I was talking to George, and George looked at me and he said, Daddy, why does the Virginia flag have a woman standing over a dead man? Now, if you know anything about George, that's exactly the kind of thing that would capture his mind. I always tell people my oldest son is a philosopher and my youngest son is a warrior. Right? And so it captured his mind that he saw an emblem of the Virginia flag of a woman standing over a man. I said, son, um, I explained to him what the emblem meant. I said, son, you know, um, back during those times, Virginia declared her independence from Great Britain. And in doing so, they wanted an emblem to show that they were not going to be subject to a king. And I said, I don't know if you paid attention to the emblem, but at the bottom of it, it said, Sic Semper Tyrannius, thus to all tyrants. It means that they would not be ruled by a king again. Now, I tell you that story for this reason. That's fine in the political realm. If you don't want to be ruled by a king, you don't have to. But that's terrible in the spiritual realm. Because the reality of the gospel is this. Unless you make Jesus your king, he won't be anything else in your life. That's the point. Jesus has 
to be king in your life. And let me ask you a question, Izzy. Izzy, does he sit on top of your throne or do you sit on top of your throne? Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch reformed theologian and politician once said, there is not a square inch in the whole dominion of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you recognize that? Do you recognize that? Does Jesus have complete authority over your money? Is Jesus king over what you watch, what you wear? Does Jesus have the final authority on the way you live your life? Those are questions you ought to ask yourself. Because you see, whether you recognize it or not, he does exercise authority over you. And one of the things that's interesting to me in this world is that there's a lot of people that believe they don't need Jesus because they have everything that they need. They have money. They have jobs. They have success. They have a healthcare system. Why do they need Jesus? Well, they need Jesus because he's king over those things. This morning, uh, my son was trying to make pancakes, the, the older one. And what, what made me laugh is as I listened to him make pancakes, he had everything he needed. He had the measuring cups. He had all the materials. And yet I still heard him yell out to his mother, can you please come and help me? Do you know why he yelled that? Because he realized you can have all the tools, but if you don't know what to do with them, they're meaningless to you. And what the gospel teaches us is that you can have the intelligence, you can have the money, you can have all the tools, but unless you submit to King Jesus and his authority and use his wisdom, they will be of no avail to you ultimately. If you read the rest of the story, one of the things that you'll see is rather than crowning him as king, it's the scribes and the high priest that crucifies him. Instead of crowning him, they crucified him. Now, we see that there are some people in this text that looked at Jesus and they misunderstood who he was. There are some people in this text that looked at Jesus, and they rejected his kingship over their life. And now I want us to look at the third category, and that is those that accepted them. What does it mean to accept Jesus as the messianic king over our lives? Now, this is very practical, and the text gives us four places, and I just want to go through them very quickly because I want to end with something, an appeal, as it were. So let's look at these. What does it mean to accept Jesus as Lord and personal Savior. First of all, notice the disciples. At the very beginning of this text, Jesus tells them to go into a village and get a donkey. And they're probably thinking to themselves, what is going on? Why not a war horse? Why a donkey? But notice with me that they did exactly what the Savior said. They found the donkey and they brought it to him, Scripture says, at once. 
In other words, they were completely obedient to him, even though they didn't fully understand what he was doing. Now, why is that an important point? You know, every now and then, I will tell my children to do something, and they will say, Daddy, why? And there are times that I give them the answer, because an answer is appropriate in that situation. But there are times I look at them and I said, you will do it because I am your father. I am 40 plus years old, and I said so, right? Now, why do I do that? And hear me on this, because this is important. When my children obey me because they understand, they're doing it out of agreement. In other words, they're saying, you know what, I think this is a good thing, and I understand it, therefore, I will do it. That's not obedience. That's agreement. And you see, when Jesus is king in your life, you do what he says whether you agree with it or not. There are plenty of things in scripture I read, and I said, my goodness, Lord, do I have to do that? Do I really have to love my neighbor? Do I really have to lay down my life? There's so many things in the gospel that we read, and everything in us wants to say, Lord, why do you want me to do this? But he doesn't leave that option up to us. You and I are called to obey, not because we are in agreement with it, but because King Jesus says to do it. That's when you know you've accepted him. Notice the second thing is submission. Look at verse number 8 and 9 of chapter 21. Jesus comes and he presents himself as the messianic king, and it said that the crowd spread, his clo spread their cloaks down and cut branches. And in John it says these are palm branches, and they spread it before their feet. Do you know what this act means? It's an act of complete submission. It's when you realize that the king, who the king is, and you submit yourself fully to it. Uh, these people, they, they only had one cloak, by the way. They didn't have many. They're not like us. You go inside our closets. I mean, we have 50 pairs of uh, pants and 20 pairs of shirts. I'm, I'm not going to go into how many shoes you have, because that's a scandal. But the reality is this. We have multiple pairs and articles of clothing. They only had one. And so the idea here is that they were giving all that they had in submission to Jesus. Let me ask you, is your life completely submitted to Jesus, or are there portions of your life you're still holding out from him? Well, that's important if he's going to be king. Notice another one, uh, real quick. It says that after they came... Verse number 9 and 10, they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What are they quoting here? Well, they're quoting Psalm 118. It's a psalm of praise. How do you know you're submitted to the king of kings? It's when you worship. And by the way, what is worship? It's understanding who Jesus is and what he is worth that you lay down everything before him. That's what it means to fully and completely accept Jesus. And then, of course, in verse number uh, 15 of chapter 21, we see the children crying out. Uh, this is the, 
This is the Psalm 8 reality, that they're bearing witness. These weak children are bearing witness to the glory and majesty of God. And it's what you and I are called to do, to bear witness of the king in the world. That we're not ashamed of the gospel and that we will talk about Jesus wherever we go. That's, that's the meaning behind this. That's what it means to accept Jesus. Now let me end with this. I, as I think about the gospel and I think about King Jesus, I want to end with an important appeal. Go back up to verse number five, and it says, when the king comes, he comes humble and mounted on a donkey. I don't know if you've read enough of the Gospels to realize this, but in the Gospel, the primary picture in which Jesus is presented to us is humble. Elsewhere, it says that he is gentle and lowly. All over Scripture, Jesus, when he, in in his first advent, when he came to earth, he came as someone humble and meek and mild. Have you ever asked yourself why? Well, the reason why is pretty profound, and it's this. Jesus presents himself like that because he wants you to come and serve him. He wants to be as inviting as possible. He presents himself as the compassionate king that wants you to be drawn to him and to serve him and to love him. In fact, when Jesus came off the mountain, one of the first things he did was he wept out of compassion. One of the last things he did was he wept when he was in Gethsemane. What was he weeping over? You and I. Jesus wants to present himself as this compassionate king while he was on earth. Now, why is that important? For this reason, when he comes back, it's not going to be gentle and lowly. Notice what scripture says when Jesus comes back in Revelation 19, 11 down. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which no, in which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will thread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Listen to me. While Jesus came the first time, he came with compassion and tenderness because he wants to draw us to himself. But the second time Jesus comes, he will come as the conquering king. And he will rule with a rod of iron. And the Bible says that when he comes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And so what I want to leave you with is this reality. While you can come to the compassionate king, while you can serve the compassionate king, because when he comes back, he will come back as the conquering king. 
And that's why you and I warn and plead with those around us to accept Christ. Accept the Christ who's compassionate. Accept the Christ who's meek and lowly. Accept that Christ who is gentle. Because when he comes back, he will come back with a rod of iron to judge the world. I say that not to scare anybody. I just say that because that's the reality of Scripture. Either we bow down to him now, or we will bow down to him in eternity. Either we will accept him now, or Scripture says we will be forced to accept him in eternity. My encouragement to you is to love and serve this gentle and compassionate Savior now. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful that Scripture clearly reveals that Jesus is a compassionate King who calls us to love him and to serve him. I'm thankful that that's the reality that Scripture gives us. But Lord, we are also mindful that the day is coming when he comes again, clothed in white. And he will rule with a rod of iron. Those two realities shape who Jesus is. May we turn and love and worship this compassionate king. In Jesus' name, amen.